0: Hey, Ryan here. Does your company have a commercial or industrial IoT project coming down the pipe? Reach out to Vary and let our world-class specialists in hardware, software, data science, and design bring it to life. The ability to like take solutions that are
1: designed for one thing over here in left field and apply them in new and novel ways is a really awesome way to generate new products and new progress on areas that haven't been achieved before. You're listening to Over the Air, IoT Connected Devices and The Journey, brought to you by Vary. In each episode, we have sharp, unfiltered conversations with executives about their IoT journeys, the mistakes they made, the lessons they learned, and what they wish they'd known when they started.
0: Hey everyone, welcome back to Over the Air, Connected Devices and The Journey. My name is Ryan Prosser, CEO of Veri, and today I'm joined by Luke Wilhelm, former head of hardware for Uber's Flying Car Project and Very's current chief product officer. Most importantly, my new co-host. Luke, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Ryan. Good to be here. Looking forward to the journey on your podcast and at your new company, so this should be
0: fun. Our podcast. (laughs) Uh, Today, we're talking about moonshot engineering projects. Um, So first, some background. Luke uh, is an old friend of mine. We last worked together in 2009 or 10. Luke, you were the VP of engineering at a company called Green Charge Networks. Flash forward, 10 or 11 years and you, you know you're like i said running hardware for Uber's flying car project. I'm sure that's not what Uber calls it. That's what Ryan calls it. Um can you talk a little bit about your journey? So like start us off. What were we doing at Green Charge? You know, talk about maybe some of your uh your time at Apple and then Uber and, and, you know, where are some of the things you're going to be up to here at Vary? Yeah, sure.
1: So I guess it helps a little bit. The background before I got to Green Charge Networks, as you know, well, as you know, but I'm not sure our audience knows, Green Charge Networks did a lot of work in grid energy storage and kind of energy management of buildings and EV chargers and solar installations. And prior to that, I had worked at two other battery technology companies, both in nickel metal hydride and then later lithium ion batteries, doing everything from cell design to manufacturing plants to battery packs, mostly automotive. So I met you guys and and worked there for a while. After I left you, I went to a to moved up to the the, uh, Bay Area here in San Francisco, and worked at a solid state battery company called QuantumScape, who's made a lot of news recently. They just went public this past year on a on a SPAC, which is a very interesting and difficult chemistry problem around battery technology. After that, I went to Apple for a little over three years, I think. Led a pretty substantial cross functional team there, developing kind of, I'll just say, a new product systems that were pretty complicated and cut across a lot of disciplines, uh, involved new facilities, involved leading hard teams but innovating and inventing new solutions to hard problems. Uh, Then I went to Uber, where, as you say, I took over the hardware engineering function for the flying car project, which I think they would rather me call Uber Elevate. Um, (laughs) That that, uh, recently also sold... Uh, out from Uber to a company called Joby Aviation, so that's where they are, and when that kind of transaction happened is when I joined you at Veri, Chief Product Officer, and I'm super excited about getting into this space, I think bringing some of my background across manufacturing and technology and engineering, uh, solution sets, and team building, and bringing that kind of to the very space and the IoT space in general, which is a kind of a new area for me, so I'm very excited to dig into it and um, kind of get the best of both worlds, hopefully
0: yeah, great. We're gonna talk maybe on the back end of the program about some of the technology investments that very makes in in the connected device IOT ecosystem, which you know is basically Luke's mandate is kind of overseeing that. But one of the things that's always really impressed me about you is major companies trust you to oversee these huge critically strategic engineering initiatives and uh, you know it's always struck me that like that is definitely i don't know your strongest suit for for folks that are out there you know today we're talking about moonshot engineering projects so like things that a company is going after that are like a, a really big initiative something that you definitely know a thing or two about right off the bat somebody out there in the audience is saying, man, this is exactly what we're doing at my company and I'm leading that initiative. What are some of the things, if they're a first-timer leading you know, a major moonshot type of initiative, as Luke is looking at this, let's say you were having a beer sitting across the table, what pieces of advice would you give to them that maybe they're not thinking about going in or, or maybe a person wouldn't normally consider right off the bat?
1: Sure. I think I'm sure there are a lot of things going through somebody's mind, having been there a number of times sitting in that position. I think the things that jump out at me as the most important ones to focus on, and I don't know that they wouldn't have thought of these, but it's definitely what I would spend the time on. One is building a really high quality team around you, of kind of like your lieutenants essentially, that are going to be much, maybe even better experts in particular areas, and really like helping you gauge whatever the highest risk items are in this crazy thing that you're about to take on what things you have to invent what things need pushing new technology to do applications or whatever uh, but really like building up that first line that core team and it's really easy to to push that off because you're trying to do so many things to get the project off the ground and so you're trying to do everything in all these different areas and really what you need to be doing is focusing on hiring and it's very difficult to have the discipline to do that I remember we were first building up our team at Apple I think I was maybe the second person on the project in my world there we, we basically gave up and started spending all Saturday and Sunday doing like interview panels where we would just like invite the candidates who would have to come in on Saturday. We'd have people from the staff like focus there all day on Saturday, all day on Sunday, and did it multiple weekends in a row, basically just to get the team built because we just had to get it off the ground. I'm like That really is the most important thing. I think the second thing after that, and I kind of alluded to it earlier, is really identifying those things that are going to be the highest risk hurdles in the, in the lifespan of this project that you're trying to take on. And make sure you're hiring into that and you're resourcing that and you're prepared to resource that
0: sufficiently to, like, overcome whatever those obstacles and challenges are. So it, it sounds like, you know, right off the bat, you're saying focus heavily on team? Yeah, absolutely. I mean,
1: there are very few things in this world where one person is, like, doing it. I mean, even if you play golf as a professional, I'm pretty sure you've got a swing coach and a caddy and a bunch of other people helping you. Like, life is a team sport. And anything that I've worked on—that's a consequential big project—is definitely a big team sport. And you really need to build that trust from the top down. You need to trust the people that are around you to do their jobs. You need them to trust the people that are doing their jobs for them. And I think really building a like a team that's got good chemistry that gets to, gets along well together. That's something that I've commented to you previously. At very done a great job of. The team is, like, really awesome. I think when we were interviewing, you told me something like, if you come to our, like, an all-hands or a dinner party, and it was, like, all the employees, you can't get stuck at a bad table. Any table that you sit at, you're going to want to talk to the people that are around the table. And that's really important in any of these big projects because it's going to get hard. It's going to get middle of the night, 4 a.m. hard. It's, like, you're going to hit rough patches, and you just need people you can be candid with and honest with. And I think you know you'll probably hear more about this as we talk through the through the, the episode, but essentially, being honest and clear is definitely something I firmly believe in, and I believe it leads to higher probability of success, even when those conversations are difficult and painful, and people's feelings get hurt, and you know all kinds of bad things can happen, but that clarity and honesty. Builds an integrity with the people that are around you and with the people that are investing in whatever you're trying to go do.
0: Totally, it's a deeply held principle for me that liking who you work with is critically important. I I think people too often view it as a nice to have. In my view, it's like a must have. When you're thinking about risk assessment, so you talked about like probability of success. I, I. definitely share your view that life is not zeros and tens. You know, it's the probabilities in the middle of like, and you're doing the things you can do to increase the probability of success. Can you talk a little bit about, moonshots are gonna have these, I mean, they're moonshots. So like risk is baked into this thing, you know, and it's a, they're risky endeavors, high risk, high reward. Uh, Talk about risk assessment. What does that look like? How does, how do you think about that through the lens of, planning a project and the upfront you know the way you're viewing it the way you're communicating it the what I don't know like go
1: yeah it kind of depends on the phase of the project that you're in so the in the early in a big project kind of the the thing you want to think about in terms of risk are really what needs to be invented that's never been done before now if you're fortunate or lucky or you've planned a project that's not totally impossible maybe it's taking a technology that's cutting edge in one space and applying it in a new, novel way, and that's going to give you a solution that you're looking for. That happens sometimes. People are developing new materials and new processes all the time for some particular thing, and it turns out maybe it's not even great for what they were trying to do, but you can use it this other way that's actually earth-shattering in that world. And that's kind of like an ideal scenario. That's the thing you really want to be after. Other times, you have to like invent new physics or not invent new physics but discover new ways of using the physics that exist to solve problems that have never been solved before and that's very common in the energy storage space you see it a lot in battery chemistry technologies and uh, a lot of universities publishing papers on things that are coming out i mean the lithium ion battery as you know it today was invented in the 80s by sony right so it's like that's been around that instance of that battery has been around that long basically unchanged and every, every year, somebody busts out and they say, we've solved this new electrochemistry problem. And they haven't solved the new electrochemistry problem. And you wind up back with these same batteries. And, um, and it's, it's part of the, the discipline at Apple, if you look over the years there. They didn't invent new chemistry, really, to like make their batteries better and better and better. But they just grind out every micron of extra space every year, year after year, and getting 3 or 5% every year. And really like like working on refining and perfection and understanding everything all the way down to the nth degree. So I think as you get into managing a project and getting it off the ground, the way you're starting to assess risks is a little bit different. And that's like the project management trifecta, right? It's cost, quality, and timing. Those three things are like what you're always trying to optimize around. You can kind of push and shove them around depending on where you are, what the highest risks are. Uh, but those are the things you're trying to optimize to get all of them over the goal line kind of at the same time.
0: What What is your view on you know, a project is, is underway. It's, it's a, you know, some percentage complete 50%, 75% complete. And the team discovers that the landscape has changed. Some new technology has entered the marketplace that fundamentally, let's say negatively impacts like uh, some better mousetrap has come out or some better approach has come out that now makes the project underway less interesting, less valuable, you know, is it, it, it like, I guess one school of thought is like, Hey, show must go on, get the thing complete, get it shipped and then iterate or, you know, tip over and back to, to the drawing board. Like, can you talk about your view on that and, and what you've seen work in your career?
1: Yeah, I think there are kind of a couple of ways to think about that type of a scenario. So one of them is it depends on the company that you're in. If you're in a scrappy startup, you've pretty much sunk everything you've got into this idea, and you're 85% of the way there, and somebody comes out with a widget that's better than your widget, you've got to make a decision. Can you afford to restart or and, and still like keep the company together and make a better thing or, or overcome what they've come out with? Or is it your probability of longer-term success better to get the thing out there that you've already pretty much sunk your company's resources into and kind of getting that across the goal line, And that's really a business decision. You have to make that decision based on that. I think in general, if you're not, if that's not your only product, so if you're an Apple or an Uber or whatever, some company that's got lots of revenue streams and you're on a particular moonshot deal, somebody comes out with a thing that's way better, then there's like two two options, I think. One of those options is you kill that project because the thing that you were doing, no matter how well you do it, can't be better than the thing that just came out for some whatever reason that makes that thing better or, and the scenario that happens a lot at a company like Apple, which is that people you're like well down the way to solving a problem or engineering a thing or building a product and somebody on your own team or from one of the like co-teams that you're working with or whatever, some other discipline comes up with an idea and they're like, Hey, what if you make the thing like this, or you implement this design feature there and it totally like blows up what you were doing, but it's a great idea. That company, Apple, is very not shy about shooting ideas in the head <laughs> that, that have a better way of getting done and taking on the new thing and starting over. And uh, I remember when I was working on a project there, and we had, we had one design attribute that we were trying to solve for, and we had all kinds of people working on it. We worked on it so many different ways, and you kind of knew the way, right way to do it, but we did we studied it from every possible angle. And one of these long time old school Apple guys, like a 30 year veteran at Apple, he's like, he's like, Luke, sometimes we walk all the way around the block and look at all the houses just to wind up right next door. But but the the goal is to like thoroughly understand the thing that you're trying to solve and then solve it the best way. And if somebody comes up with a better idea or a smarter way to do it later, don't be shy about taking that on and tearing up what you've already done and and taking the new path.
0: So Luke, one of the things you mentioned earlier was the inherent riskiness of an instance where you have to insert, invent this thing into a Gantt chart. It's it's baked into the process. You're not going to be able to avoid that thing. I feel like that's an underappreciated risk for a lot of people. You know, they look at their Gantt chart and they're like, look, 80% of this is uh, commonly available things that we just need to invent this and this and this. And then we've got this, you know, game changing device. I know Wilhelm's Law which I have named after you, you've not named it after yourself, full disclosure for the audience, but <laughs> is this idea that that's driving step function risk at each instance of invention. Can you expand on that a little bit? And like for folks out there that that are looking at their Gantt chart and seeing must invent this, must invent this, what do they need to know and what maybe aren't they fully considering or should they be?
1: Yeah, I think if you have to truly invent new things like new chemistries or new materials to solve a problem that's never been solved before, that's a very hard, near impossible thing to put on a Gantt chart and plan into an actual project. You, my, in my mind, if you have to write that line item that's like, <laughs> like invent new material A by here, you have like dropped the probability of timely success by two orders of magnitude, I'm sure. It's, it becomes much, much harder to predict where things are going to go. There's lots of stuff that's hard to do, but it's about executing and doing the blocking and tackling, and you know, in like flying car world, for example, you know, as, as you put it in the eVTOL land. In doing things like lightweight composite structures and propellers and wing design and low low acoustic noise profiles, like all that stuff is hard, but it's all more or less known technologies that you're trying to tweak and optimize to make better. but Replacing what is jet fuel, jet A, with a battery system that's 500 times less energy dense is a much bigger problem. So you're like, okay, we're going to have to invent a solution here because this hasn't been done. And and that's you know you want to identify those risks early, put as many resources as you can on them, partner with the best people in the world. If it's not your company, find the company that it is. Don't be uh, egotistical about it. Be humble about it. Admit that it's hard. And get get partners lined up that you can trust and work with uh, that can help you try to solve those those impossible or nearly impossible tasks that you got to get done.
0: So okay, let's take that and let's stay on that, but through the lens of managing up. Okay, so you know someone out there is director of engineering, VP of engineering, whatever, and their CEO has said, "Hey, this is our moonshot that we got to get this done." You know, this is critical, existential, whatever. One of the things, you know, I've known you for 15 years. One of the things that Luke is excellent at is managing up, you know, and just like unflinchingly communicating information that in this case, I am often the recipient of this. But the, you know, that the CEO does not want to hear. It's, in, it's an inconvenient truth or truths. You got folks out there that might be find themselves in this situation where like it's a moonshot, but they feel like maybe the CEO doesn't fully appreciate, you know, the risk, the inherent riskiness of needing to invent three separate technologies or processes in order to make it true. What's worked for you? What can you share with the audience about like how to effectively communicate that within the C-suite?
1: Yeah. Very early in my career, my first job out of college, you know, I still had like dreadlocks, you know, coming out of, coming out of college halfway down my back. And I was working on a project for General Motors, I think, at, at a company in Detroit, and I'd given this pitch to, like, there are some top guys there, and and my CEO came up after me. He's like, he was like, dude, I don't know how you do it, but you can talk to a C-suite, and you can talk to a line worker with, like, perfect confidence at both of those levels and still communicate your ideas really well, and that's an attribute you would need to latch on to. My... And I obviously was, like, you know, certainly complimented by that. My approach with people in general, and I mentioned it earlier, is always to be honest about it. A lot of people, in my experience, really, really, really don't want to tell their boss's boss or their boss's boss's boss terribly bad news. And for good reason, right? Like, nobody wants to deliver, like, terrible news. And my advice is twofold. One, the fact that you don't want to say it doesn't make it, like, not true. So you kind of still have to deal with it. It's reality. So being honest about that and getting over that hump early is important. And two is to try to come with some solutions. You may not have the exact solution, but it's way worse to deliver bad news with no ideas on how to approach attacking or solving the problem. Like if I come to you and I say, Ryan, we're totally hosed on this program because we don't have this thing that we really need – and I and I just like end the conversation there and go home for lunch. Like That's probably not going to be a good day for me. <laughs> and it certainly wouldn't be at any of the larger companies that I've worked at in the past. If I tried to pull that with Dara at Uber, I don't think he would have gone for it very well. So I think that you want to come with at least some ideas on how you can start probing that problem. Like Here's the problem specifically. I think we can get after it by partnering with this company that does something similar. This team has approached something similar this way. Or we're going to try to understand it deeper by buying this tool, or this microscope, or this whatever, and understanding that the problem better, and give some like steps down the down the path. You may not see all the way to the end of the path, but at least give some confidence that you're on it. You're trying to solve it, and you're being open wide to different solutions coming from anywhere that they present themselves.
0: One thing that I, I've always admired about most of the of the hardware companies whose products I find that I am. Uh, the biggest fan of, they've really weaponized the word no. They understand what they're trying to do and they say no to almost everything. And then it seems like, you know, when that leaves them free to when they say, yes, go just completely nail it. Take us behind the scenes, you know, as an engineering executive, how how do you weaponize no to help you? make your yeses more effective or like help that drive more successful product development outcomes?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, at Apple, like it's literally taught to you in some of the exec level comms and strategy classes that you wind up taking there as they invest to develop staff to say no early and often. Like that's one of like the flashcards that you get basically of, of like a mantra. And I think through my career, the good CEOs that I've worked with are able to identify things that just don't add that. Like, for, they're either in the project for the wrong reason. Some person invented it, and so they're personally attached to it. So it's lingering on in this project, even though it's not really adding value. It's not doing the thing it should do. Uh, so lots of good leaders have said no to things over the years, but Apple was very formalized about it. Like they really taught that. And you know, Steve Jobs was infamous for his <laughs> his desire and demand to be uh, pushing ideas onto customers. Right, like deleting floppy drives and deleting CD drives and all, all sorts of things like that and and saying no to things that he considered superfluous or, or or the team thought was superfluous ultimately so i think that especially if you're in you know smaller company smaller startup company that's really strapped for cash you don't have the luxury of trying to pursue everything that might be fun to pursue you really need to like you need to weed out the things that are not going to add maximum value to the actual solution that you're trying to chase after and try to eliminate those peripheral things that people very quickly can go down and spend a lot of time and money or people's hours on that's not really on the right path. And so you know, trying to constantly correct to stay on that right path uh, to solving the actual project problem, like the real core issue mission that you're after, is super important. And that can be deleting features, that can be deleting people, that can be deleting organizations. It's, uh, it's correcting the problem as soon as you can and saying no to things that are not solving the, the fundamental thing that you're going after.
0: Last topic related to, I, I guess, what I would characterize as like some of the softer skills related to managing these moonshot initiatives, and and often like at the top, it does come down to managing a lot of these softer elements. I have found that like when you look under the hood of most failed initiatives, so which is different than an initiative like that you killed and you said, "Look, this doesn't make sense. We're just going to you know divest from this." I think of failed as like they just, you know, the company just missed something. It brought it to market and it shouldn't have, or it was executed in in a, a suboptimal way. When you look under the hood of a failure, I find that one of the ingredients in that soup is rationalization. You know, so the, the team, key people at key moments rationalized away what was, with retrospect, pretty obvious feedback. Um, and they said, yeah, but you know, or, okay, well, you know, and and instead of like absorbing that really difficult information, you know, I think would have informed, hey, this project should not continue like this or in this direction. Is that something that, you know, I can see you nodding your head, like, can you talk about the dangers of rationalization and like, how would a person out there be able to maybe identify that they're doing it without realizing it. I like, for example, one of the things that I'm often looking for and asking people is what is the question you're most afraid I'm going to ask you? Be honest with me. Let's talk about this. What right now are you absolutely terrified I'm going to ask about? And then let's drill into that thing, you know, because that's probably where rationalization is hiding. Can you talk a little bit about that from what you've seen behind the, the scenes and some of these big moonshots that have gone good, bad, or otherwise?
1: yeah for sure i've I've been a part of lots of successes but also a handful of failures in there as well and um I've definitely seen the significant damage sometimes of uh, corporate fatal damage that can be done by rationing away rationalizing away problems that you just don't want to face People have a really hard time a lot of times and i mean it's human nature you don't, nobody wants to like deal with negative news especially if it's about people that they really like personally, but maybe they're in a position where they're doing a ton of damage to the company, but they're a great person. They don't want to get rid of them or pull them out of that position because they know it's going to hurt them. Like I have seen that basically kill companies. I've had CEOs in my past say, well, look, I know you're telling me this guy shouldn't be in this position and it's going to really cost us. And I'm like, yeah, like it's going to kill us if we don't solve this problem. You have to solve it. And, you know, I, well, I'd rather deal with the double I know than the double I don't know. And to me, that was just, I was just like, oh man, (laughs) that's just the wrong answer. Like yet you need to solve the problem. You need to rip the bandaid off and deal with the problem and solve it. So I guess that's mainly how I think about that. It's just, just, uh, pushing honesty. And I think in terms of realizing you're doing it yourself, I, you know, over my career, I've evolved like personally, I'm sure like most people do through their lives. And I was very, uh, kind of type A battle ax early in my young career, kind of as a, you know, bull in a china shop kind of a thing. And as I've matured over the years, I think one of the things I've really focused on the last like eight or 10 years for sure is kind of having empathy for other people, like kind of assuming that people are trying to do a good job and trying to solve the problem and not assuming that they're coming at it with malicious intent or or not just not capable of solving it. And it really like helps put yourself in a different perspective. And I think uh, it also helps you manage different types of people and and a lot of projects that we deal with now where it's different nationalities, races, genders, whatever, backgrounds, sciences, disciplines. There's just so many different personalities and really like putting yourself in other people's shoes as often as you can is a is a great way to help build those bridges and build great teams. I think that's also a good way for you to reflect on yourself. You know, be thinking back about yourself and am I, do I have a blind spot here? Like, am I doing these things like making decisions based on personal you know, relationships or whatever and not based on what's best for this project, the product, or the team, and the company. So that's that's kinda how I think about that. You just need to reflect on yourself and be honest with yourself and ask people that you trust. I mean, you know, the number one thing that I said at the beginning of this is hiring great people around you and building a great team. And don't build a team that's gonna say yes to you. You know, <laughs> like I remember I was I don't I was can't remember who I was talking to. Maybe it was Ben when I was interviewing with you guys. He's like, yeah, we're definitely not looking for yes men. I was like, well, that is not going to be a problem. <laughs> <We're> definitely not, <laughs> like, for, sure, or for sure. And I don't want to hire them, I don't want them around me. Like, I don't want those people. And most really good teams don't have those people in them. They want people that are going to be data driven and honest and attacking hard, uh, hard parts about whatever's going on with with honesty and clarity and data, and be willing to put their personal like emotional feelings aside. And like, just because it's my thing that's getting shot down by 10 other engineers in a design review doesn't mean they don't like me or that the idea didn't have its merits it's just that they've got good points and you need to adjust course and that's why you have this honest conversation
0: yeah i find that i cherish people around me that disagree with me like challenge my point of view and that tell me things that i didn't previously know and often those two things go hand in hand you know by challenging they're pairing that with hey i disagree you know, here is here is additional information I don't think you've considered or or have or know. I was going to say that also goes back to that empathy
1: point because if you put yourself in other people's shoes, you, you can start to realize they don't have all the information and the facts that you have. They have more in some areas and less in other areas, and and remembering that before you overreact or knee jerk to a particular scenario is really important. And because uh, to your point, it's like a lot of times. They didn't know a thing that they maybe would have gotten to the same answer you're on if they would have had that information. So I totally agree with you on that.
0: Would you say that you've seen more big projects fail because leadership rationalized away difficult personnel issues? aka I think everyone has seen what you were describing and probably a lot of people in the audience are nodding their head right now saying yeah 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 I've seen instances where some key managers or direct contributors or whatever should not have been on this team maybe not even at this company but for you know various reasons the, the difficult decisions were not made to do anything there So that versus you know the insertion of invent, thing here into Gantt charts. Like which one would you say in your personal experience has killed more projects, driven more successful, unsuccessful outcomes, I should say.
1: Yeah, I think the, so I've definitely been a part of both. I will say the biggest failures, company failures that I've ever been a part of, whether I was still there when they failed or not, uh, is a result of poor, poor key people being in the wrong role, like good people that are in a role, they're not capable of running and, a lot of times, that those roles can be very expensive roles to be in, you know, COO type roles or whatever. Like those roles were like, they're managing a lot of money through the company, and if they steer it the wrong direction, you can start funneling dollar bills into a furnace very, very, very fast. And so, those are the the biggest failures that I've seen of a company. That the not invented not not invented by this date or not created new physics by this date challenge definitely exists. But and if the team is honest about that you're kind of you know that's a real thing like you know that's a risk like i worked on multiple battery chemistries where you're trying to invent a chemistry that's super stable and batteries are like really hard things like these materials that really want to get together and create a bunch of heat are like microns apart and you're jamming as much of it in these little tiny lightweight boxes as possible and lots of materials are not stable in all that environment the voltages the chemistries the chemicals that are going on like tons of stuff in there makes that very hard And so if the team is honest about that and they're presenting data honestly and in a transparent way, then the the management will see that. The management will understand that. And if you have the backing from your investors and your funders to tolerate that risk, those companies may not be, and in some cases still aren't successful and have been around 15 or 20 years, but they have an honest rapport and can still go back again and fight another day. And they're still making progress down a really long, complicated road. I haven't seen like the the scheduling of invention in in an honest environment, kill a company or kill a program. I've seen people be disingenuous about results they're getting, and those types of things can also cost you tons of money because somebody's telling you, like, this thing is going to work, and I'm showing it on this data that this is going to work. And it turns out, fast forward a year, that data wasn't accurate. Like, something about it was wrong. Like, part of it was generated from one design, and part of it was generated from a different design or whatever. Somebody, like, did a thing that was kind of not genuine And that can cost you millions and millions of dollars, and six months or a year or whatever in time, and uh, that can kill a company as well, uh, for sure.
0: Yeah, on the subject of disingenuous reporting, you know, I'm 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 about halfway through Ken Burns' documentary on Vietnam, and I think you know Ken Burns puts out fantastic documentaries, and you can see time and time again Robert McNamara, you know, reporting frankly disingenuous feedback. Um, and, and it, it like informing baseline assumptions that then others were building upon. And, you know, when your baseline assumptions are not just incorrect, but like bad faith created in bad faith, you know, nobody else has it very difficult to, to craft a winning strategy on, uh, on that kind of a foundation. And it's that time period now courses. So. So obvious with the benefit of 50 or 60 or 70 years of history wasn't as obvious at the time, but you can now see with the benefit of that, that like disingenuous reporting of metrics and information and feedback basically set everybody else up, including two presidents of the, at least two presidents of the United States up for colossal failure. Yeah, hundred percent agree on all those points. Ken Burns documentaries are fantastic.
1: (laughs) I definitely agree with that. And I also agree that you know in my world, like disingenuous things have resulted in loss of money or time. They haven't resulted in losses of life, but that certainly is a real thing. And you know, it's a, it's a real thing in the automotive world, or the aerospace world, or obviously in military and you know, government politics.
0: Yep. So yep. Okay. Last question. So you know, we're talking about um, you know uh, Ken Burns. We've talked a lot about large engineering moonshots. Talk a little bit. I know you're a big fan of of, uh, science fiction. One thing I've always wondered looking at the world of science fiction, whether it's like, I don't know, The Matrix or going all the way back to uh, Space Odyssey, art informs science, science informs art. What's your view on which is leading the other?
1: I mean, certainly I think there's a bit of both, right? It's a a bit of a feedback loop. But my feeling is that like science fiction – Art generally informs science you know the most the, the best example or like the most obvious example is uh, kind of Star Trek and you look at like flip phones and disk drives and iPads and like all kinds of stuff that, <laughs> that was around on, you know in the 60s on in, in Star Trek episodes and I also think that like the freedom of of art art as a visual media anyway since we 're talking about movies or books, I guess really. But especially with, like, the digital age of, like, stuff that's possible to be envisioned and, like, people really being able to bring their kind of dreams to a reality, like, a visual reality of, like, really drive inspiration. Maybe, like, the exact thing isn't possible or whatever. It's far-fetched, but it can inspire ideas in the real world. And I think that, like, and I, you know, we've talked a little bit about this earlier, but the ability to, like, take solutions that are designed for one thing over here in left field and apply them in new and novel ways is a really awesome way to generate new products and new progress on areas that haven't been achieved before. And it's a lot easier than invent thing here on the Gantt chart. But I think that, like science fiction, whether it's literature, art, film, whatever, can inspire those types of kind of cross pollinated thinking and can generate some real world change.
0: Yeah. No, I think you, you see over and over in the best science fiction or an element of great science fiction that design thinkers are now untethered by engineering realities, you know? And so when it's in a book or on TV or movie, like it doesn't actually have to function in real life. You know, it just has to be something that like, uh, optically is interesting and, and compelling and makes sense, you know, to look at whether or not like it has the computing power to be able to, you know, if, or the computing power. If Moore's law has caught up with the thing yet, yeah, that's irrelevant through the lens of, of science fiction, which I think is what makes it an intriguing category. Well, Mr. Luke Wilhelm, we are out of time today, but I want to thank you for coming on. I'm very excited to have you as the co-host for future episodes. And yeah, thanks for being here.
1: Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be here, and I look forward to both uh, being your co-host and joining Vary, getting
0: this thing off the ground. Luke, thanks for being here. You shouldn't have to worry about IoT projects dragging on or unreliable vendors. You've got enough on your plate. The right team of engineers and project managers can change a pivotal moment for your business into your competitive edge. Very's close-knit crew of ambitious problem solvers, continuous improvers, and curious builders know how to turn your ideas into a reality, on time, and up to your standards. With a focus on mitigating risk and maximizing opportunity, we'll help you build an IoT solution that you can hang your hat on. Let's bring your IoT idea to life. Learn more at verypossible.com.
1: You've been listening to Over the Air, IoT, Connected Devices, and The Journey. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure to hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player and give us a rating. Have a question or an idea for a future episode? Send it to podcast at verypossible.com. See you next time.